This message by Walt Alexander was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Walt serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. We're going to look at James 5 this morning. So if you'll flip in your Bible, book of James, James 5. And if you need a copy of the scriptures, we got plenty of copies. We'd love to give you a copy of the scriptures. So if you want to raise your hand, if you need a copy to follow along as we read and as I preach, you're welcome to one of those. James 5. Verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's the Word of God. It's a privilege to stand before you this morning again and to handle this text together. You know, it's so common to look at the lives of others and assume they're much better than our own. You know, that's so true. So no matter how old I get, regardless of how much I know better, I can fall into that temptation again and again and again. I can assume that someone else's job is just much more interesting and more fulfilling. Or their relationships are richer. And less bumpy, like Bill was talking about in that prophetic word. Their vacations more exciting, their life easier. You know, by all accounts, the world looked on the life of Anthony Bourdain in this way. Anthony Bourdain was a New York City chef who climbed his way to the top. He's a best-selling author, and his fame grew as he had a TV show that took us to parts of the world unknown and showed us what to eat there. And some of those episodes just get my mouth watering this morning. Burdain had it all. Best-selling author, top of his field, new career in TV, success, money, world travel, endless varieties of food. Several weeks ago, though, he committed suicide. What happened? Your friends were left scratching their heads. You know, he seemed so happy, so alive. In all these TV shows, one family member said he had everything, success beyond his wildest dreams, money beyond his wildest dreams. And as the weeks have gone by, it's become clear that Bourdain struggled with depression. And he's taking his own life. It's just all too common. 
Listen to this in one episode as he describes his depressive temptations. He says, I'll find myself in an airport, for instance, and I'll order an airport hamburger. It's an insignificant thing, a small thing. It's a hamburger, but it's not a good one. We all know that feeling. Uh, Suddenly, I look at the hamburger, and I find myself in a spiral of depression that lasts for days. Now, you may hear that, and you're like, a spiral of depression over a hamburger? You know, a lousy hamburger? But maybe the depression was because all that he tried to bring this good food into the world, and yet there's so much bad food still there. And he just felt this emptiness that takes over him in that moment. But he continues. He said, it happened. it's like that with the good stuff too. I just thought, that's incredible. Now think about that. What he's saying is, so yes, it's this bad hamburger can send me in a spiral of depression, but so can the success and the money and the fame and the TV show that's taken me all throughout the world. Think about that. Have you ever felt that way? You ever felt the emptiness of things? Our souls need more than food, success, money, and travel. Bourdain found it to be true. All the good stuff's not enough. All the success and the relationships and the money are not enough. They're all ultimately empty. In our passage this morning, James returns to one of his favorite subjects, money. He addresses these wealthy landowners who are defrauding the poor in the community. All too often, the people of God look on the wealthy with envy. But James, in this passage, unveils the emptiness of wealth. His words are like frontal blows. They're direct. They're blunt. They're vivid. They're hard. And as we overhear these blows, we must heed these words and direct our hearts to the only lasting treasure. And more than that, as we overhear these words from James, more than that, we're overhearing the words of God that God has for us and to direct our hearts. In a word, where I'm going this morning is set not your heart on treasure that fails when it ultimately matters. Set not your heart on treasure that fails when it ultimately matters. Matters. James is always looking to the end. This is prophetic wisdom. So he's looking to the end of the thing. He's looking to see what is going to hold up in the end, and that's where he's going. And so I've just broken this out in three cautions for us. The first one is beware of loving what you possess. Beware of loving what you possess. James wastes no time in getting to the point. Like I said, this passage is blunt, and he directly addresses his audience. Come now, verse 1, you rich. Now he's, he's immediately beginning to address the audience of these wealthy landowners in the, in the community that are defrauding and oppressing the poor. And James gets right to the point, and the entire section really is like an indictment. Ten times he uses the word you. Five times he uses the word your He's he's not coming asking questions. He's not coming seeking understanding. He's bringing the truth. He's speaking prophetically. He's indicting them for their selfish ways and condemning them. 
You know, in many ways, this is like a courtroom where the prosecuting attorney is circling the room, where the judgment is about to come down, and James is bringing these charges. He's bringing the sentence. And he brings several charges which we'll receive as cautions. And the first one is that beware of loving what you possess. Beware of loving what you possess. One commentator writes of these verses, There is no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit which it tends to engender in the heart, and the way in which it's used. That's very good categories. It arises, you know, there's no sin in being rich. Where sin exists is the, the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit it tends to engender in the heart and the way in which it is used. Well, the first charge that James is going after is their heart. He's going after the way this wealth has been used and what it reveals, about, or the spirit that it has engendered in the heart. Wealth has captured their hearts. Look in verse 2. He says, Your riches... Your garments, verse 3, your gold, your silver. The emphasis is clear. They viewed their riches and garments and gold and silver as their own. That's quite obvious, right? They were obviously wealthy, and, and what they're saying, in effect, is that all this stuff is mine. All this wealth is mine. All the riches and the garments and the gold and the silver is mine. All of it's mine. And you don't have to teach a kid to say mine, right? It's one of the most famous words, or I mean, at least most used words in our household. Children have no money, no bank account, no ability to create wealth, no ability to get money, no service to render to society, completely dependent on mom and dad. But when they receive a toy as a gift, they say mine, <laughs> Sometimes as dad, I just want to say, no, it's not. It's mine. All this stuff is mine. I worked. I bought it. I've been sweating. I paid for it. You know, it's humorous, right? To see a kid, mine. And you know, we can do that back. Mine, 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 mine. Back and forth with them. But it's humorous to think this is theirs when they didn't do anything for it. But it's also absurd. And that's what James is getting at. This absurdness is arrogance. Their posture is not humble, like Mike pointed out last week. Their posture is arrogant before God. And this is what he's come to charge them with, this arrogance, this absurd arrogance to claim. Do they not know the earth and the fullness thereof is the Lord's? Right? All that's in the heavens and the earth is the Lord's. Every good and perfect gift, as James told us in verse 1, is from above. How can they claim riches as their own when the Lord gave them? And we can be, and we are often, little different. One commentator says, we have a possessive attitude toward things. We moved last week. I don't recommend it if you have a possessive attitude towards things. As your friends 
sling things into the U-Haul. One, one friend, because I was walking around with the, you know, the, whatever, the rags or the quilt things that U-Haul gives you. I was walking around trying to make sure everything's perfectly quilted and taped up. And one friend just kept asking me, why do you care so much about how we pack this item? It's just a thing. I said, that thing was from grandma, you know. <laughs> that thing's a family heirloom, you know. But we can so often slip into that possessive attitude. Hey, don't sit there. There's a better chair that's more sturdy for you over here. Don't, don't spill on that couch. You can drink in this room, but not that room. But what do we have that we haven't received? All of it has been freely from his hand. But James keeps going. He says in verse 2, Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Now, these words are very familiar to us, right? They're, they're Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. So your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten and your gold and silver, which do not corrode, actually corrode in the kingdom of God. Their error, see, was not just their arrogance, but the way their arrogance led them to love their possessions too much and to fail to use them for the kingdom of God. Their riches, instead of being used to supply the needs of others, rocked. Their garments, instead of being given away to cover the backs of the poor, are stowed away in unuse and eaten by moths. Just like that old wedding dress is up there in the attic. Their unspent gold, their unused silver, rust. They loved it too much. They hoarded it. They, they kept it to their, themselves. It, it corroded in unuse, and, 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 and it corroded in their very hands. And James says bluntly after that, he says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. So he takes it a step further. James taught, taught uh, uh, on money, and he's telling us that, that it's more than just not being used. That They thought that treasuring this up would actually secure them. Amassing this wealth would actually uh, help them in the day coming, that their wealth and their gold and their silver would make them secure. But James says and assures them, it will not, it will fail. Look in verse 3, he says, that corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. It doesn't get much more vivid than that. It will eat your flesh like fire. For those who love money too much, there is a certain wrath coming. That's what James is saying. If you find yourself in here this morning too aware. You know, money has a way of drawing out our emotions faster than anything else. You get your credit card stolen and a couple transactions run on it that you didn't run and your heart just begins to beat quickly and money can so often steal our hearts and that's what James is after. He's calling anybody that's there to come to Christ. But all this underlines a very important principle for us. We may not be in the exact same scenario that they're in. We may not be the, the description that they are uh, rich people that are, that are suppressing poor but there's an important principle for us. What you possess is yours to be used. 
What you possess is yours to be used. That's why you have it. Your money and your possessions are meant to be used. <laughs> That's why they're given to you. That's why they're given to us. And if you have more than your neighbor, that's great. Then, then use more. That's what he's getting at. Remember the parable of the talents? You know, some got five, some got two, one got one. And, and the only person that the Lord was angry with was the one who just buried it down and didn't do anything with it. Because money is meant to be used. You know, in the kingdom of God, money is meant to be held loosely. There are a lot of things we're supposed to hold on tight we got to hold on tight to purity. we got to hold on tight to integrity. we got to hold on tight to sound doctrine. we got to hold on tight to the gospel. But money, we hold loosely. Our world just clings to money. But we are supposed to be a different place, a city on the hill where money flows through our hands to those who need it. You know, applying this principle means we, do, we have to know the difference between wise saving and sinful hoarding. We have to know the difference between wise saving and sinful hoarding. There's a difference, and it'll cost you. That's what he's getting at. Yeah, I believe John Piper's dead right when he says the question that Jesus drives us to ask again and again is not how much should I give, but rather how much dare I keep. Piper's scared of money. Jesus taught on money more than anything else. We should be scared of money. How are you using your wealth? How are we using it? What are you doing with your excess? Now, I know everybody's got different degrees of excess, but what are you doing with it? Would your friends say you're generous? Does your giving stretch you? Like Bill referenced the Macedonians who gave beyond their means. Does it require you? Does it require us to sacrifice? Does it require us to amend our long-term goal? Do we have goals for giving? I'm 38, you know, I want to have a goal for giving when I'm 65, that it's not this same percent when I get there. We have goals. Do you still tithe? These are hard words, hard questions, because money's a hard subject. But James is coming to alert us, set not your heart on treasure that fails when it really matters. He wants to awaken our attention. Point two, beware of dishonest dealings with others. James moves on to charge the rich for the dishonest manner in which they acquire that wealth. Remember the three categories? He's, he's charging them for the dishonest manner in which they've, they've, they've acquired this wealth. And there's so much he could include in this verse 4, but uh, he could tell us about their insensitivity towards the poor, or their dishonest practices, or even how bad the, the life of the poor was when they went unfed. But essentially, he only mentions one thing that the Lord of hosts hears. The Lord of hosts hears. I love this. Look in verse 4. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord 
of hosts. So this, this is describing a, a happy time. It's harvest time. In the community, the crops are bearing fruit. The laborers are bringing in the harvest. They're bringing in the bounty. It's a vivid picture. For an agrarian society, it's a happy picture. It's a wonderful time. Yet after all their sweat and labor, the workers go unpaid. They go home hungry. That's very simple, the way that's laid out. They go home hungry. They go home unpaid. They go home poor. Well, the scene is a reference also. It's an allusion to Isaiah 5. There, the Lord is describing his people. He's describing his people being oppressed. He's describing his people uh, being put under rich who control the land and overrun them. And they're cruel and unfair. But what Isaiah 5 keeps pointing out is that the Lord of hosts takes notice. The Lord of hosts hears. And to James's audience, these would have been wonderful words. They would have known the Lord still cares. Lord of hosts still hears. They felt trodden like this. And if you're If you're put under the thumb of an employer that's cruel and unjust, it may not seem to move the needle in the moment, but the Lord of hosts hears. That's the truth. Lord of hosts is listening. Now, this, this name is incredible. This, the Lord of hosts. It's used in Isaiah 5. That's where it comes from. It's only used two times in the New Testament. It's Lord Sabaoth. It means Lord of hosts, right? But, but Lord of armies, Lord of legions, of angels, the, one who, the, the Lord who possesses absolute authority over all of heaven and all of earth and command all the host of angels, which is described in Isaiah 5, in which Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees with his own eyes. The seraphim and cherubim all around the throne, which the Lord commands. And that's what he's saying. It reminds me of Jesus' statement to Peter in the garden. Remember, Peter slashes uh, that centurion or Roman official's ear. And Jesus says, do you not think I can appeal to my father? And he will at once send 12 legions of angels. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Alec Martyr describes this word like this. The Lord of hosts points to the Lord who has within himself and at his sovereign command every possible potency, every possible power and resource. He is host. No power however great or solid to the earthly eye, is beyond his capacity. And no need, however pressing, is beyond his means or outside his attention. So how can the powerless laborer respond to the all-powerful landowner? Cry out to the Lord of hosts. And that's what happens. Look in verse 4. Just says the wages right there at the beginning... After the claws are crying out against you. I love that. Literally, the wages are crying out. Injustice is everywhere. The wages are crying out and the laborers are crying out. Everybody's crying out and the Lord of hosts hears. So what are we to make of this? A couple thoughts. Or first, this caution. 
Beware of dishonest dealings with others. Beware of dishonest dealings with others. Simply, do not defraud. Do not defraud. Pay what you owe. Pay your debts. One, one writer warned us, all who employ others must ask themselves if there are any voices calling out to God against them. Second, be honest in your dealings. Now we know differing weight and differing measures are an abomination to the Lord. You know, differing standards, differing invoices for different clients is an abomination to the Lord. Lord likes set prices. Maybe we wouldn't be that bold, but, but is there any deceit or dishonesty in our handling of money? In our use of the business credit card? in our reports to the IRS. You know, some of this stuff is not always simple and, and clear-cut. You know, situations involving money because they involve our hearts so quickly are often very naughty. Are we honest? Are we transparent? You know, do we pay for the services rendered to us? Do we follow through when it hurts? We could add, be generous. Go beyond what's required. Proverbs 3 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it's due when you have the power to do it. Yeah, I've read of Christian conferences uh, that, that the restaurants around and the servers around dread them. Because the patrons complain and they don't tip. I'm not a big conference goer, but, uh, but in some ways I take that personal. Am I like that? You know, what, what do people think when we walk out of the restaurant? Set not your heart on treasure that fails when it really matters. Stuff's hard. So we need the Lord's help. Point three, beware of comfort. Beware of comfort. James conclude with, char with charging the rich for how they spent their money. While they hoarded money and refused to pay the laborers, they had no trouble spending it on themselves. That's what he's getting at. There's this double standard. They're, they are stingy with others, but they are indulgent with themselves. They lived on in luxury and self-indulgence. Look at that, verse 5. You have lived, again, this indictment, this charge, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Together, these words, they, they describe a life oriented to self. Not necessarily wrong in every way. Not necessarily doing things that are illicit and forbidden. Not necessarily indulging in those types of things, but offering little, little resistance to self-satisfying comfort and pleasure. It appears they gave little thought to anything else. And it's so easy to slip into. To where 
the barometer for the success of the day is how comfortable we feel. James continues, verse 5, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter. So he's telling us that this, this indulgence, this self-satisfying comfort and pleasure in this indulgence, the, the error in it is that it was short-sighted. They thought they were living the good life with no worries, but they gave no thought or little thought to a heaven to be gained or a hell to be avoided. And the image is fearfully vivid. Now, I don't know anything about farming or cows or anything like that, but the image is clear. A cow, a beast of some, some kind, a, a cow is, is just grazing and eating day after day, growing fatter and fatter and happier and happier and ignoring the fact that each day brings them one day closer to the butcher. What he's saying is, it's foolish. It's stupid. James says the rich are like that. They feast only in this life. That's what he says. You know, the foolishness of it is right there on the, on our, in our text. You live on the earth. So they have a this-worldly mindset that's, that's focused on their self-satisfying pleasure and enjoyment that's focused on this earth. That's the foolishness of what they're doing. It reminds me of the, the story of the rich young, or the story of the rich fool, Remember? A rich man's land produces plentiful, and he decides to tear down this set of barns and build another set, you know? So then he says to his soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Be merry. But what was his error is what Jesus pushes us to think. What, what was wrong? Was it building a bigger barn? Is that what it is? No. His error was this worldly thinking, not thinking about the life to come. That's why Jesus says, soul, this night, or fool, this night, your soul will be required of you. And this temptation is so great. There's obviously a temptation to lose your soul indulging in luxury and extravagance. It's serious. We've seen it consume many. You know, I've, I, even in my house, I feel like in my house and in my lifestyle and in the things I'm able to give my kids, there's enough in that lifestyle and in that house to ruin their soul, to addict their soul to pleasure and to drive them away from God. It is very serious and it awakens me, it scares me. But in the day-to-day, -day, I don't think it's luxury and extra extravagant that is our problem and our most near temptation. I think it's comfort. This verse, to me, is a probing reminder of the incredible power of comfort. There may be few more pervasive idols in American culture than the idol of comfort. An idol promises joy and security apart from God, and comfort is a powerful and pervasive and persuasive 
idle. Being comfortable is okay. You know, I don't like to be hot when I'm hot. And I don't like to be cold when I'm cold. You know, it's, it's an okay desire as long as we don't desire it too much. I love the way Paul Tripp describes in one of his books. He talks about the way comfort can just grow as the day goes on. Before long, it begins to rule our little straying hearts. He says, I was driving home, particularly exhausted on a Wednesday night. I love to cook and I find it relaxing, so I stopped and bought the ingredients for a traditional Cuban meal. I could hear the meat sizzling in the pan, and I could smell the wonderful combination of tomato, garlic, cumin, and lemon. I don't know what that smells like, but uh, I left the grocery store tired but happy, thinking about how much my wife would appreciate the meal since she was born and raised in Cuba. I was thinking about how our children love black beans and rice and how they would appreciate me as well. We are so blessed, he writes. We have a dad who cooks. The vision of a happy family and a relaxed dad made me smile as I drove into the garage. But I was not even out of the car when my daughter greeted me and said she needed a ride downtown. In parentheses, nearly an hour trip right away. I couldn't believe it. I could already feel my emotional temperature rising. That's something we can relate to, right? I can feel my emotional temperature rising. I was not yelling, but I drove her downtown in silent irritation. On the way back, I gave myself the, this always happens to me speech. A few blocks from home, Luella, his wife, called on my cell phone to tell me that she had to see someone on her way home from work. She, she, she suggested I not wait for her for supper. She also asked me to run to the store because our high school son didn't have anything for his lunch tomorrow. With my wonderful Cuban meal decaying in the trunk, I drove past our house to another grocery store. This time I was not a happy man. I flung the lunch items onto the basket, and when I got to the checkout line, I was quite irritated at the elderly lady in front of me who couldn't find a pen to write a check. I finally arrived home an hour and a half later to find my other child standing in the door with a paper in his hands with the exact measurements of a calculator he needed for school tomorrow. So before he got another word of, out of his mouth, I exploded. What am I, the delivery boy for the world? Do you have a clue what type of day I have had? Whatever happened to really learning math instead of learning how to use a calculator? <laughs> Is this what I'm paying for, for that school? I walked to the, to the car and he followed at a great distance behind me. Waiting outside the store, I examined my shattered hopes, wishing someone would pay a little attention to me and angry with people who'd gotten in my way. I told my son I suggested we pick up a couple pizzas for supper, and we drove home in silence. I stored the ingredients for my Cuban meal and went into the living room to sulk. He concludes, By the time I had finished shopping for the Cuban meal, I was holding the desire for a relaxing evening with a closed fist. But God had another plan. He'd arranged to give me an evening where I could serve him by serving my family. He gave me the blessing of giving, the joy of laying down my life 
for others. Yet I did not see it because I was ruled by my desire for comfort. And so often, I think that's the way it happens with us. That's the way it happens with me. What desire for comfort do you hold with a closed fist? Where is it beginning to rule? Is it just a few minutes each evening with no child talking or pestering you? Is it just ease in your errands? Is it the freedom to buy what you want to buy? Just some retail therapy, as they say? What causes you to sulk? What makes you moody? Is it small slights and inconveniences that mount up through the day? Or is it the way you view your present circumstances that are no longer going according to plan, obviously, because they're so different from what you had hoped or dreamed? Comfort and life lived for comfort is a dead end. And we must beware. Must beware of comfort. Beware of the ease money can buy, especially where we live. Set not your heart on treasure that fails when it really matters. I want to conclude by looking at verse 6. You know, James... He's been very sober, very direct, very blunt so far, but he ends even more soberly. Verse 6, he says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. The indictment of the rich has gotten very seriously. What he's saying is that in hoarding your possessions and defrauding the poor and loving comfort and excess and not using it on other people that you have condemned and murdered the poor, the, the, the righteous poor person. Now, is it literal? I don't think so. I think what he means is, is you strip the poor person of their ability to create and enjoy wealth. You've stripped them of all their Means. That makes sense? You've stripped them of their livelihood and you've left them destitute. It's, it's, it's serious. All their dishonesty has escalated to this. No greater wrong could they do than to leave these poor folks destitute. And there's another who was condemned and murdered for the love of money. And the church through the years has seen this verse is a veiled reference to Christ. Now, you know the story just days before his death, Jesus gathered into the house of a leper at Bethany, and a woman, overwhelmed by the experience of forgiveness, interrupted the party and poured out her expensive ointment on the Savior. To Jesus, it was a wonderful delight. It was an act of worship. To the disciples, it was a waste. It could have gone to the poor. To Judas, it was the last straw. He left that room. He promptly went to the chief priest and says, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? And you you know, he he went on to sell the, the Lord. He went on to sell his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And how often have we done the same thing? 
That's what James is driving at with our money. Our, our sins with our money are not merely sins against other people. Our sins with our money are sins against Jesus Christ. How often have we loved our possessions too much to let them go for Christ? How often have we let a generous opportunity pass us by? How often have we loved comfort too much, more than sacrifice, more than others, more than dying to ourselves? And what he's saying is just like those rich landowners, we are guilty as well. We have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And he does not resist us. All the greed and covetousness of our hearts, all the dishonesty, all the stinginess, all the wastefulness, all the possessive love of things, all the arrogance, all of it was laid on him. And hear those words, and he does not resist. He does not resist. That's incredible. He could have resisted. He has a throne in heaven above. He has legions of angels at his command. He's the one who is rich. He's the one who was rich and possessed all authority and all wealth. All wealth is his, but he did not resist. That's what the passage tells us, and this reference tells us he took it on to himself. He hung suspended between heaven and earth, bearing the furious wrath of God for money lovers, for people who misuse money, people just like you and me. Why? Why would he do that? Because he'd want, to get us, want us to get a taste of true, lasting treasure. He'd want us to be able to see true and lasting treasure. He became the poor man. He became the thief, the oppressor, the stingy, the ungrateful man. And he suffered so that we would never suffer for those things. But so that getting a taste of him, coming to a knowledge of him, having our eyes open to the, to, the, to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we might taste in him, enjoy him now, and also await an eternity in which we enjoy this treasure forever. And it's never exhausted. And the only person we're living for, the only tre tre treasure that never fails, Jesus Christ. Oh, Cornerstone, this passage, I think, calls us to live for it. To live for that day. <laughs> to treasure him above all our possessions. All our money. All our things. And it's here, beloved, at the foot of the cross where we see, yes, the ugliness of our sin. But we also see the power of grace. Our hope for heeding these warnings is not our resolve. Our hope for heeding is that grace that, flew from that, that flows from that tree will train us to live for the treasure that never fails. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that though he was rich, he became poor so that we who are poor might become rich for his sake. God, you have blessed us in so many ways. What do we have that we haven't received? And Lord, let us not, if we've received it, boast like we haven't. 
God, I pray that you would convict us where necessary. You would encourage us wherever needed. You'd help us to walk in the fear of you and in obedience to your word with an eye towards this treasure. Father, we love Jesus Christ. We want to live our lives for him. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Walt Alexander during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.